Good morning, church. Sweet time of fellowship. I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I love hanging out with God's people. <laughs> I love our fellowship time, getting to talk to people, getting to meet people, and uh, it's been just fun. Um, Christmas season is like over, and we still have Christmas trees up here. I don't know how it is at your guys' house, but sometimes like my parents are like, when it's done, it's done. Everything's gone the next day. It's, not even, it's almost like after Christmas morning, like the, uh, the nativity scene's gone already, the Christmas tree's in the trash, and we're through it. But um, here we are. We got Christmas trees, and so I'm so stoked. Do you guys have a good Christmas? Awesome. Christmas Eve was such a blessing. If you guys missed it, um, we had some of the kids come up here and sing Christmas songs, and I was just, when kids sing Christmas songs, like the truth of God's word and singing about how Christ came to save us, it just blesses to hear these little voices sing. And so, what a great Christmas. Now, I have kind of an odd opening story for you, but I'm going to share it because I think it fits with uh, the passage as I was thinking about it. So I'm newer to the community. I've been here for, living here for about three years. And um, one thing I've noticed here, I mean, I noticed a lot of things in Santa Barbara, and I love Santa Barbara, but one thing I've noticed is there are a lot of rodents in Santa Barbara. Um, some, maybe I'm triggering some of you guys right now. But I'm not like super familiar with having like problems with rats or mice or something like that. Anyway, um, right before COVID hit, so two years ago, or a year and a half, I don't, know, I don't even know how long COVID was, two years ago, a year and a half ago, um, I started noticing rats in my backyard. And I was like, and I, used, I grew up on kind of like this ranch as a kid, and I had a pet rat. So I was like, oh, whatever, it's a rat, no big deal. Well, I started seeing more of these rats, and they were just kind of like going through the, brush, the, the brush. We had like fruit trees and avocado trees, so I was like, whatever, they're just hungry, they're just hanging out. This is the spot, I guess, you know? But then I started seeing them trying to get into our garage, and I was like, that's weird. Like, they're like very aggressive here. Maybe this is a Santa Barbara thing. And then one night, we had a small group over, so we had our small group, and we were spending time in prayer, and I heard this noise, like loud, repetitive noise, and I was like, is that the wind outside? Like, that's intense. And I can see people looking up in prayer like, oh, what is that, you know? Okay, the day after this, I go in my garage, and I notice that there are rats getting through a hole in our garage, climbing up the wall, and getting into our attic space. It all clicks to me. All these noises we've been hearing, all these strange sounds, all these like screeching in the night. My wife and I, we have PTSD. I mean, we literally can think about how we hear these noises above our heads while we were sleeping. And it was terrifying. And so I called my landlord, and he was like, okay, Ryan, do whatever it takes to get rid of these things. So I call the exterminator. And this guy comes in like a knight in shining armor, just rides in in his white Terminex truck, and he's just like, Ryan, here's what we need to do. We need to do this. We need to set traps. We need to find out where they're getting in. We need to cover those holes up. We need to attack immediately. We need to take this serious. He crawls up my attic space, and he goes, okay, I have bad news. Like, it's already multiple families of rats in your attic. And so the, the screeching you're hearing is rats fighting over territory. And he said, so once we start killing all these rats, the problem is, is we seal these holes, and they get so aggressive, and they're hungry, they might chew, chew through your drywall to get food. So I'm terrified. My wife and I, we have to go to sleep in this house. We're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Long story, oh my God, that kind of was a long story, but let me just, let me just tie it up. This Terminus guy, he comes in and he does everything that's needed to get rid of these vermin in our house. And he just goes in and wipes them out. And they ended up cleaning up our attic space. They got it all um, cleaned up and sanitized. And 
So we're good, okay? So if you come over to my house for dinner, please don't think about this story. But um, here's the point. Here's why I brought this up. Is as I was thinking through this text on what it means to put sin to death and taking how serious sin is, I thought about how you know, this gross metaphor is similar to sin in the life of a Christian. How sin gets into the life of a Christian, just like a rat can get into the house. They don't belong there, but sin can and does find ways to get into our lives if we aren't careful. And if sin isn't dealt with, like the rats in my house, they will destroy the dwelling. They will destroy the place. Sin needs to be taken serious. And the Apostle Paul tells us here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, that it needs to be put to death. And that is the main point in the text this morning. Now, throughout the letter of Colossians, Paul has been reiterating the good news of what God has done through Jesus in dealing with our sins and giving us this wonderful, beautiful new life in Christ. Paul clearly states in Colossians chapter 1, which if, you, if you've been with us through this whole season, that you've, this will be refreshers for you. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you jump over to chapter 2 in Colossians 2 verses 13 through 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul reminds us over and over again about the reality of the Christian's position in Jesus. And oh, is it a sweet, sweet position. Once dead in sin, now made alive in Christ. The old man is gone. Behold, all things are made new. Romans 6, 6 tells us our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, might, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's good news, right? That is wonderful, wonderful news. And Paul is so faithful at reminding us of that simple gospel message. We're no longer slaves to sin. Sin is dead to us. But if you're a Christian here today, you can testify that although we are dead to the old sinful state, sin is still very much alive. We as Christians, we are tempted to sin daily. Evil thoughts, selfishness, lust, anger, a loss of self-control, lying. I mean, you can go on and on about the things that we are tempted to do on the daily. I have my fourth kid, okay? Patience is a sensitive topic for me right now. The Christian still sins. It's a bummer. Even though we're no longer slaves to sin, Romans 6 tells us, even though we have died to sin's penalty, Romans 6, 2 tells us, which is a glorious truth, sin is still a powerful foe against our weak flesh. This is why Paul regularly admonishes churches that are full of Christians to stop sinning. Not because Christians won't ever sin, not because their salvation is pending or at risk of withdrawal, but because Christians can and should do everything in their power to resist sin at all costs. This is the message Paul is preaching here in Colossians 3. 
Paul tells us, verse 5, what to do with sin. He then lists a few sins to watch out for and sins that are hot-button topics for the Colossian community in verses 5 through 9. He reminds us of how serious sin is in verse 6. And then lastly, he leads us all to worship Jesus. I'll repeat that really quick. He tells us what to do with sin in verse 5, then lists a few sins to watch out for in verses 5 through 9. He reminds us of how serious sin is in verse 6. And lastly, he leads us all, leads us all to worship Jesus. So far, Paul spent the first half of this letter teaching the Colossians about God. He's been teaching theology. Now, the majority of that teaching has been the simple, sufficient, wonder-filled news of salvation in Christ. This is expected from the guy who said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I decided, as Paul speaking, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was known as a man who preached the gospel. But he also taught on what life, what a life transformed by the gospel looks like. He made a habit of that, actually, not just teaching gospel doctrine, but teaching gospel culture or teaching gospel living. This method of teaching theology first and then moral reform second is not new to Paul. In the letter to the Romans, Paul preaches the ins and outs of the gospel. We've read Romans. The first 11 chapters is just gospel goodness. And then verse, chapter 12, verse 1, he pivots to begin giving instruction. This is how it begins in verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, therefore in light of all that I just told you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now he goes on to give instruction on spiritual gifts, life in the church, how to live with one another, the marks of a Christian, and etc. Now, likewise, in the book of Ephesians, Paul preaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ for three chapters. Then he pivots in chapter 4, Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, again, in light of the gospel, a pr- I, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he goes on and on telling the Ephesian believers how they ought to live a life that is worthy of Christ. And it's an extensive list of do's and don'ts in Ephesians chapter 4, 1, all the way to 6.20. You can check that out this week. Now, Paul's teaching pattern is simple and it's effective. He preaches the gospel, which is the power of salvation. And then he teaches gospel living. Now that you've received this power, you've experienced this power, live in light of this power. Here is what you need to know, the gospel now that you know it, here is what you need to do. It is this informing and the warming of the heart and mind to how good and worthy Jesus is of our lives that helps and leads and ushers us into a place where we want to live for him. And then these new Christians are like, and how do we do it? And Paul's like, and here is how you do it. Now back to Colossians now. That Paul spent the majority of the first two chapters preaching the gospel, preaching gospel doctrine, teaching the preeminency of Christ, doing his his greetings and his welcomes and his prayers, he turns to teach gospel living. Chapter 3. And he begins with the inward man. Now, if you were here with us last week, we we read and studied verses 1 through 4. And that was the beginning or the kickoff of this gospel living section. Um, 
The title of today's sermon is The Resurrection Life Part 2. Daniel kind of pigeonholed me last week by saying it was part one. I was going to say part B, but I didn't want to mess him up on that one. So here we are, part two. I want to reread verses one and two in chapter three to give some context of the beginning of this new life in Christ. Paul says then this in verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, Daniel again taught the last four, those, those first four verses, and simply put, and if I would encourage you guys to check out the podcast, it's an, it was an amazing sermon, but I'm going to pull out a point that helps apply us or kind of transition us in this next text. Simply put, Paul is saying if you're a Christian, then the first place transformation will and must take place is in your heart and your mind. And that involves seeking and setting your mind on things above and not below. Now here in Colossians verses 5 to 17, Paul follows the natural, fluid progression of, tra- of the transformative life in Christ. There is a progression. First the mind and the heart, the knowing of who God is and the desiring of God, and from the mind and the heart flow the actions or the behavior. So the first thing Paul instructs these Christians on is what to do with sin. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We'll stop there. Paul is essentially saying, stop sinning. (laughs) It's like if a preacher came up here and said, do better. (laughs) He's saying, stop sinning. Put it to death. Here, the word earthly in this text is not describing all things on the earth. In this context, earthly could easily be swapped out with words like carnal or fleshly or worldly, or probably the most familiar would be sinful. Put to death what is earthly or sinful in you, because what is earthly and sinful is in opposition to what is heavenly. This is the logical flow of teaching out of verses 1 and 2. If you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, then you need to set your affections and your desires and your attention on things above where Christ is. And not only earthly things are things born of the flesh, which are the opposition to the Spirit. Now, the further evidence of the meaning of the word earthly is found in the following verses where Paul lists two specific categories of earthly things. He lists sins that are um, sexual in nature, and he lists sins that are hateful in nature. Sins that are sexual in nature and sins that are hateful in nature. Now, we're going to kind of fly through these because I want to, the sermon's kind of like loaded on the back end here, but Paul begins with the acts of sexual sin And then the ends with the inward desires or the root of sexual sin in verse 5. Let's go ahead and finish this verse. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I want you to notice there's a progression here. And he flips it halfway through. So first, with the sexual sins, he goes from the fruit or the works of sexual sin to the root or the source of it. When he goes to the the sins of hate, he reverses that. He goes from the root of it back down to the fruit. Now, I'm not sure why he did that. But all I know here is that there is a progression here that we can follow, and I'll kind of try to flesh that out for you a little bit. So he first lists sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word used here is pornea, which the English word we understand would be pornography. Now, we understand to be talking about whether it be like sexual explicit images or writings. But in the New Testament, Pornea or pornography had to do with sexual morality. Any intercourse outside of the marriage 
relationship. So Paul is saying here, stop this, put this to death, put it off of you. He then gets into impurity, which is kind of the contamination of character. And in context, this is impurity directly attached to sexual morality or evil thoughts, an unclean or a dirty character. It then flows into passion, which passion can be a word used for both good things and bad things. But we better understand this word as lust. Really, any unhealthy or dominating desire referring to the sexual appetite. Again, keeping it in context. Here's where he switches to more of the root of sexual sin, which is evil desire. Opposed to good, healthy, God-ordained desire for sexual intimacy. This is the desiring and pursuing of someone's spouse, if you're married or if you're not. Desiring pursuing of same-sex relationships. This is the desiring and the pursuing of sex outside of marriage. This is evil desire, and Paul is saying, put this to death. Covetousness, the root of the other sins listed. Evil desire for more of what is not in bounds with God's will or what is forbidden. And because covetousness elevates evil desire over God, at its core, Paul is saying it, it is idolatry. Now, in context, this would be placing sexual desire or self-gratification over obedience to God and then serving that God in the place of the true living God of the universe. That was quick, but Paul says, put this to death. It is not from above. The second highlight advice is his hate or hostility towards one another. He, Paul begins with the root of anger and ends with the fruit. Let's read verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9, excuse me. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now this really is, this list here, is kind of the emotions of hate. Some of the actions of hate and the emotions of hate. Anger is godless. He's talking about godless anger here. This is opposed to righteous anger. The emotion of hate and hostility toward one another, which should not be named among the people of God who are supposed to be known for their love. He then says wrath, anger in action, being angry and then lashing out in some way, shape, or form, which flows into malice, closely related to, to wrath, intention and desire to do evil or harm to somebody. He then starts talking about the fruit of this, which is slander, verbal harm or evil towards another, speaking evil of somebody. He then says, obscene talk from your mouth, the use of words that tear down and hurt your neighbor, or dirty words that can drag people into sin or cause people to stumble. And then lastly, he says, lying, not speaking truth, concealing the truth, flattering, exaggerating, bending. He's saying practicing these things are not consistent with your life in Christ. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of earthly vices, Paul's addressing the here and now sins that seem to be apparent in the church of Colossae. Now, sexual sin is something that's been trending for a long time. Now, it doesn't take a book in the Bible and to look at the, what was going on in the Colossian church to say, oh, they're the ones struggling with sexual sin. Jesus has a lot to say about sexual sin. The Apostle Paul has wrote multiple letters addressing sexual sin. And you could say, oh, wow, he's speaking to the times. But man, he is definitely speaking to our times. Because sexual sin is running rampant. So for us Christians, this is a word for us today to put this to death. But relational strife or the sin of anger or hate, this is more specific to the text here today. 
We have good reason to believe that this is more specific to the Colossian church due to the extended false teaching that the Colossian church has been experiencing. And this false teaching has been putting people up against each other, whether Jews or Gentiles up against each other, disagreeing opinions, people who are faltering from the gospel, and it appears that they were speaking evil to and about one another. But here's the bigger point being made here. Sin is not consistent with the new life in Christ. It is, however, consistent with the old man. And since the old man is dead, Paul says, put to death what is left of him. Now, this teaching may sound like barbaric. Just the idea of saying, put sin to death. Yeah, it sounds kind of hardcore. But Jesus teaches this way. Jesus, Jesus taught in Matthew 5 how to deal with lust and sexual sin. And he just taught as hardcore and severe as Paul. He said in Matthew 5, verse 29, speaking of lust, he said, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is not advocating for bodily dismemberment here. Because that's not going to stop us from sinning. That wouldn't do any good. Because sin begins in the heart. When you, our desires become twisted and evil and anti-God. The Apostle James shares this uh, teaching in James 1, 14 and 15. He said, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It begins with a twisted desire. So cutting off the arm of the thief might scare him from stealing for a couple days or maybe a year, but it does not stop his heart from coveting that which isn't his. Now Jesus is teaching that sin is serious and it must be treated as such. And a lot of times treating sin or dealing with sin or putting sin to death is painful. It hurts. It can be costly. It can require sacrifice. As painful and hard as, it's, as it can be to cut out a hobby that's going to be drawing your attention from God, or that's something that's an idol in your life, something that's been binding you up, as painful as it can be to part with a hobby, it is far better than you to save your soul. As painful as it could be to sever a relationship, whether it be a dating relationship or a friendship that's dragging you down, that's drawing you into sin, as painful as that can be, it is far better to follow after Christ. As hard as it can be to find a different form of entertainment, to stop watching a certain show, to put your mind and your attention on other things that are holy and godly, as hard as that could be for some people, and for a lot of us, it is far better to part ways with those things than to lose our soul. And when I say lose your soul, I mean suffer terrible judgment, separated from God, in a place called hell for all eternity. That's heavy. That's really heavy. And like Jesus, Paul also wants to remind us of the penalty of sin. In verse 6, Paul gives a good reason for why the Christian must put off these earthly vices. In Colossians 3, 6, he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, we don't talk about the wrath of God too often. We talk about God's goodness and his kindness and his forgiveness that is way easier to talk about. And you know what? I get it. Obviously, I want to talk more about God's kindness and his goodness because that is the wonderful good news of the gospel. 
is God coming and showing us kindness, leading us to repentance and giving us faith in Christ. But wrath, the wrath of God, it's not exactly like dinner conversation. It can be uncomfortable. Um, it can put people off. But God's wrath is real. And it is coming. Because a holy, good, just, and righteous God will not let evil go unpunished. Where sin dwells, God's wrath will visit. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now Paul is saying that the wrath of God is coming on those who practice ungodliness and who reject the truth that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Here in Colossians, Paul is not saying born-again Christians are in danger of God's wrath. That would be not the gospel, because the wrath that Paul is speaking of here is final judgment for those who deny Christ. For the Christian, the wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus when he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. I want to read Isaiah 53 for you guys in verse 4 through 6. Speaking of Jesus, surely he, was bo- surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of of his son. Christ was beaten, he was whipped, he was mocked by men, but that was nothing compared to the wrath of God that was poured out on him because of his great love for us and paying the penalty for our sins. Paul is bringing up the wrath of God here to show how serious sin is. It's as if Paul is saying, to the Colossian church, how could you go on practicing sin knowing very well what Jesus went through in liberating you from it? How could you let these sins dwell in you, knowing that the men and women will, men and women will experience God's dreadful wrath and eternal damnation in a place called hell if they have not put in their faith in Jesus? So take drastic measures to not let it get a foothold in your life. Now, moving on to verses 9 and 10, so far Paul has strongly exhorted the Colossian believers to put to death sin and put off the old self. Pretty heavy section of scripture, pretty dramatic and very serious. Verses 9 and 10 are the transitional verses from the negative imperatives, the don't do or the put off, to now the more positive imperatives, which are the do and the put on, most of which will be covered next Sunday in verses 12 through 17, but our remaining verses here are really wonderful. Let me read you, uh, starting back in verse 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is tapping into some really amazing realities when it comes to the life, the new life that we have in Jesus. 
The first reality is this. The new self is both new and being made new. The new self is both new and being made new. Those who put their faith in Jesus are justified, which means they've been declared righteous, sinless, and holy, and yet are being sanctified, which means we're becoming righteous, we're sinning less, and we're becoming more holy. We're perfect, yet being perfected in Christ. Now, this theological idea is often called the already not yet, and it applies to our state of being perfectly righteous in Christ, yet still wrestling with sin in the here and now, in this earthly body. Now, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said that Christians are sanctified, meaning they have been made holy. He said this in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ. And yet, Paul prays also elsewhere for God to sanctify the believers in Thessalonica completely. He says in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul isn't contradicting himself here. He is teaching one of the glorious realities of the life in Christ. We are holy and being made holy Because of what Christ has done for us, we are positionally secure, and nothing can change that. God looks at us, and he sees his son's perfect work. He sees righteous, holy son or daughter in Jesus. Amen. We are holy and being made more holy. When Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, he did not only wipe our slate clean, As wonderful as that is to know that our sins have been dealt with, they're gone. He also credited us with his perfect, holy life. That way when God the Father looks at us again, he sees his son. Our spiritual status in Christ is complete. Even though we still sin against God in the here and now, even though we are not perfect in the here and now, we are perfect in Christ Hebrews 10, 14 tells us, for by a single offering, he, speaking of Jesus, was perfected, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, why is this this such an amazing reality? Well, I would say because when we struggle with sin, it can be very discouraging. You could hear what I just said on the first 15 minutes and be like, thanks. (laughs) You know, like, I feel like I'm, Maybe God's spirit is not in me. I still struggle with sin. I still have these tendencies. I'm still wrestling through these things. But what this reality points to is that we're going to struggle with sin. That doesn't change the fact that you are positionally safe in Jesus. Now, when we sin against God, we can be further tempted to believe that we aren't worthy, that we have lost God's favor, that We don't measure up, and there's a level of truth there when it comes to us not measuring up. But the reality of us being new in Christ and yet being made new tells us, it tells us that our standing before God is done, it's secure, because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Not because we've measured up, not because we kill sin at every corner, not because we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's because Christ has once and for all made us new by killing the penalty of sin on the cross. And that confidence should encourage us to kill sin, to walk in obedience. It should encourage us to 
repent of sin when we do sin and move forward in God's grace, knowing that we are also in the process of being renewed. Now, the second reality is this. The new self is being renewed by God. So if you thought for a second, man, this sounds like a bunch of stuff that I have to do. Let me just give you some peace and some rest. Yes, there is a huge part that we play in being obedient to Christ. But us being renewed, that is the work of God. That is not us trying harder. That is us trusting in God and seeking Him. Now, Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. I'll read the, the whole passage again. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, the birth of the old self was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, our first parents, chose to disobey God. And from that time forward, mankind has not imaged or reflected its creator accurately. Romans 5.12 tells us, 12, why does that sound weird right now? 12, okay. Romans 5.12 tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Our old self was corrupt through deceitful desires and in, spiritual, in a spiritual sense did not show the resemblance of its creator because we all had fallen into sin. And had we been left in this state, we would waste away. We would completely waste away. But then God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8 tells us. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, because of what Christ has done for us, we are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is how the new self comes about. Christ has saved us and made us new. Now, notice something that Paul says here in verse 10, the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, when Paul says renewed in knowledge, he's referring to the knowledge of God. Not a vague knowledge that God exists, but an intimate knowing of God and who he is. This has been the prayer for the Colossians for some time now. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul said this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice, it's the filling up in verse 9 that we just read of the knowledge of God that helps us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He doesn't say that renewal comes by how good you are or how good you are at slaying sin. It's not by, again, the works that you do, how hard you try. He says renewal comes as we grow in relationship and knowledge of God. This tells us two things, two subpoints. Number one, renewal is not primarily our job. Renewal is not primarily our job. And number two, renewal is at our fingertips. Renewal is at our fingertips. I'm going to touch and go on these points pretty quick. Um, renewal is not primarily our job. As Christians, we are to walk in obedience to all Christ's commands, which includes killing sin, as Paul has drove home for us here. But it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit 
that we're able to do this. Among many things the Holy Spirit helps us with, the most important thing is the gift of knowledge. Him opening the eyes of the blind. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to know and receive the gospel. And in our text this morning, we were reminded that it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we were able to put sin to death and be renewed. Because renewal comes through trusting or faith in Christ and knowing relationship in our Creator. The Bible tells us that if the Holy Spirit, it is the Holy Spirit that imparts wisdom and knowledge to the believer. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And also we see the spirit has given us the word of God in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that, excuse me, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This leads us to our second point, that renewal is at our fingertips. It's right here. For the Christian, the Bible God's word is the way the Holy Spirit renews or primarily renews us in the knowledge of God. God's revealed word that makes sense, that's able to be comprehended through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here in the image of God, oh, excuse me, let me wrap this up, okay? Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is no Greek And Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, the word here, literally the word here in this verse, is referring to the image of God that Christians are being renewed after. Here, in the image of God, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is teaching that in Christ, there are no distinctions of race. There are no ancestral religion or caste systems or social classes. Even when we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God back in Colossians chapter 1, we don't read about ethnical characteristics or physical characteristics read about Christ's preeminence, about his holiness, about his power, about his, his sustaining of creation. In the next couple of chapters, if we think about what it looks to put on Christ, we're going to read about his love, his righteousness, his kindness, his patience, his gentleness, his grace, and his power to save. The full and perfect image of God is seen in Christ's life and death and resurrection. Now, this may be a passage that doesn't strike us as groundbreaking as far as just removing all barriers between people groups when it comes to us coming to the foot of the cross and being one in Christ. 
But in the ancient world, to say that there is nothing that separates these groups of people would be offensive. And it'd be hard to hear. The Jews, the circumcised party, refused to mingle with the Greeks, the uncircumcised Gentiles, because they saw them as dirty and intolerable. The Greeks returned the sentiment. Barbarian is a word to describe an uneducated, underdeveloped people group, oftentimes looked down upon by the educated. The Scythians were a people group. They fell into the barbaric category and were known in the ancient world to be extremely violent, warlike tribe that delighted in murdering people and were often, oftentimes um, explained as animals, wild animals. A slave was seen as a tool in the hands of the wealthy and were oftentimes looked down upon. And a free man, Paul contrasting those who often owned slaves, would think it to, it to be ridiculous, a completely ridiculous thought to actually have a slave and a free man who owns a slave be equal in the sight of God. Now, these are all man-made distinctions. And Paul is saying that in Christ, in his church, there are no barriers. There is no partiality. And there's no one, pre, there's no one preeminent people group. All preeminence belongs to Christ. And we are all one in Christ. Now, Paul concludes with a small doxology to solidify this point. I'm going to read it for you guys, and then we're going to pray. It's simple, but it's powerful. Colossians 3:11. But Christ is all and in all. Let's pray.